Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. And on today, International Women's Day, March 8, 2019, the lives of Venezuelan women bear witness to the struggle for human rights and against imperialism and war. This revolutionary process is also about millions of people, and especially women, who have led and fought for a type of change they wish to see in their society, and they're making it happen every day. And what is feminism? At an upcoming gathering, women will organize under the banner, Feminism for the 99%. Feminism has really been tainted because women like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris, they call themselves feminists yet facilitate mass incarceration, facilitate wars abroad. As we know, Clinton has been a warmonger. All that and more, coming up. I want to ask, why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA, of fossil fuel industries or big pharma, and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy? Welcome to a jam-packed special episode of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for International Women's Day 2019. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, all of the news and information we bring on this show, including the terror caused by U.S. militarism and war, are somehow made plain when we consider their impact on women and girls. This week, Kirsten Nielsen, Secretary of Homeland Security, defied fact and told Congress that the Trump administration did not put children in cages. But after legal advocates filed a complaint, 15 infants were released with their mothers from an immigration jail in Dilly, Texas. One baby was five months old. The campaign I Stand with Ilhan, supporting freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, successfully pressured House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week to not introduce a resolution designed to condemn Omar for questioning the outsized influence of the Israel lobbying group APAC, the coalition of Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and progressive organizations stated that any future such resolution must also condemn Islamophobia, racism, and threats against a, and threats against a member of Congress, such as those received by Omar since taking office. We'll hear from Omar in her own words later in the show. An assortment of rallies and cultural presentations are marking International Women's Day in the D.C. area. Today, Friday, March 8th at noon, Code Pink is protesting the jailing and abuse of Saudi women activists in front of the Saudi Embassy, 601 New Hampshire Avenue in Northwest D.C. On Saturday at 11 a.m., the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site and Mary McLeod Bethune Council House will present a program on the forgotten role of African-American women in the struggle for women's voting rights. And this is one of several programs in D.C. leading to the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote on August 18, 1920. Cuba continues the 60th anniversary celebration of its 1959 revolution, and a movie about the role of Cuban women had its D.C. premiere Thursday night. Chantel James was on hand. The Institute for Policy Studies hosted the Washington, D.C. premiere of the film Cubanas Mujeres en Revolución at the True Reformer Building on U Street on Thursday. The documentary by Argentine filmmaker Maria Torreyes has been well received by audiences around the globe since its premiere last year. 
The audience of 100 who packed the theater enjoyed a viewing of the film, which highlighted the vital role women played in the events of the Cuban Revolution, as well as the contemporary perspectives on the liberation the legacy of the revolution continues to bring to the lives of women. After the film, panelists Cheryl Labash, Maha Hilal, and Quisha Bradley briefly spoke to it in conversation moderated by the Institute's Violetta Curiel. Quisha Bradley of Pan-African Community Action, inspired by the popular struggle of the Cuban Revolution depicted in the film, tells why movements start with the people. I think every movement, every revolution, every just cause or act should actually be led by those most impacted. Like, it sounds trite, but those closest to the problem also are closest to the solution. Um, so things cannot be developed in a silo. You also can't uh, kind of understand an experience unless you've gone through it. To find out when the Institute for Policy Studies will hold its next film event, visit their website, ips-dc.org. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And there are more events and actions in the coming weeks, including on March 14th, 6.30 to 8 p.m. in front of the White House, a tribute to Marielle Franco, the Brazilian politician, feminist, and human rights activist who was assassinated one year ago, and no one has been held responsible for her murder. On March 16th, beginning at noon, women are taking the lead in the National March on the White House, U.S. Hands Off Venezuela, sponsored by the Answer Coalition. And finally, on March 23rd, beginning at 10 a.m., the Feminism for the 99% Conference kicks off at the People's Forum, 320 West 37th Street in New York City. And that is sponsored by the People's Congress of Resistance. And those are our headlines and happenings for International Women's Day. When we come back, feminism for the 99%. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on International Women's Day. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, on March 23rd, beginning at 10 a.m., the Feminism for the 99% Conference kicks off at the People's Forum, 320 West 37th Street in New York City, and that is sponsored by the People's Congress of Resistance. Joining me on the line for this special on International Women's Day is Carla Reyes, one of the organizers for the Feminism for the 99% Conference. Reyes is a public school teacher in New York City and an organizer with the Justice Center in El Barrio in East Harlem. Welcome to On the Ground, Carla. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, 
Women on the left have long developed critiques of feminism that include race and class as well as gender. So I thought we could start with you speaking to some of that critique and why organizers are calling this gathering feminism for the 99%. So um, we're really excited to organize this conference focusing on the 99%. It's really echoing a sentiment from Occupy Wall Street back in 2011 because what we want to do now is build a militant women's movement that's anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist, which are all things that affect working people, hence the 99%. Mm-hmm. And feminism has really been tainted, I feel, um, in recent years, because women like Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris, they call themselves feminists, yet facilitate mass incarceration, facilitate wars abroad. Like we know Clinton has been a warmonger for a long time. Uh, Libya and Syria are, and Honduras are all evidence of that. So we need to reclaim the term for ourselves and broaden it so that we can include women who don't want to lose access to their housing or lose their jobs or their access to social services, women who have a real stake in fighting. And we want to bring them into a movement that will not just tell them to vote. And this is what we want to do. That's why I said earlier I want to make it like a militant women's movement. We want people to not get trapped in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They say what we want to hear, but they don't take action. It's interesting because you, you mentioned the Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris, and that was actually one of my questions I had, because as the 2020 presidential race heats up, you know, it looks like it could be a flashpoint for this divide about what feminism is. For example, and I think you already mentioned it, Kamala Harris is supported by many Hillary Clinton backers. And she's been seen in this video kind of giggling about and proud of this law she enforced that jailed parents, you know, including single women, if their child was truant. And I read one story about a woman whose family life was really destroyed, turned upside down by this law and being arrested you know, because her child didn't go to school. And all the female candidates, with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, have have not denounced these imperialist wars or the trillions in military spending that could be used for human needs. Yeah, and that's why we need to base the movement in a real struggle and call that out. Not just call it out, but fight against it. Voting a woman into office doesn't change the status quo. It doesn't solve the crisis. I think about Ilhan Omar, who is kind of standing alone in the House of Representatives, where she's denouncing Israel, denouncing all the money that the United States uses to support Israel. Um, she's right now standing against the sanctions and against the coup attempt in Venezuela, all, against the war attempts, because all the money could be used for domestic issues here. Like we have right. plenty of people who are homeless. I think in New York City, and I know this because I'm a teacher, and it just affects my life so much, 114,000 students are homeless. That's one in 10 students, and it's the biggest public school system in the country. So that money could be used to help house students in the finance capital of the world. Yet it's being used abroad to supposedly protect ourselves from what, though? Like, we're the danger in other countries. But back to the point about Ilhan Omar, she's standing alone, and then there's women who like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are, you know, now standing with her, but are saying that Omar's being attacked because she's a woman. It's not because Omar's a woman that she's under attack. She's under attack because she is denouncing U.S. imperialism, using her platform to denounce U.S. imperialism. And I think that's a powerful distinction to make, which is what we as anti-imperialists, anti-racists, feminists would highlight, 
So it's less about the identity and more about the ideology. They're, she's fighting the ruling class ideology right now. You brought up two other issues that I wanted to you know, address in, in some more detail because, you know, you talk about being a teacher and as I'm sure you know, you know, teachers and women all around the country are really shaking up the labor movement. There have been strikes and victories in West Virginia and Oklahoma, L.A., I think just recently Oakland and so these teachers are striking not only for in increasing their own wages, which in some of these red states was some of the lowest wages like in the country for teachers, but they're striking for the the issue and the of quality public education for all children. And how does that fit into the, you know, narrative for, you know, feminism for the 99%? Yeah, uh, teaching is a feminized profession. Most teachers are women. So you know, teaching is a very uh, underpaid and overworked position. I saw an article this morning, actually, on my newsfeed on Facebook, and it said that teaching is the most underpaid profession. It's the one that uh, people work the most hours outside of their job. Most overtime without pay. I think that was the phrase. Most overtime right. without pay. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that that happened because there is a, a second shift. Right? Women are doing work in the home, domestic work, taking care of others, and then also doing a lot of overtime without compensation. So it makes sense that teachers are rising up all around the country. And I think what's made these strikes so successful and so impressive is that they have included community issues too. You know, they're not just striking for their own wages, but including paraprofessionals, um, staff that doesn't always get recognized as supporting the school community, and decreasing class size. And having more social workers and less police. Those are all things that matter to building a strong community. So mm -hmm. broadening the movement and broadening the point have shown how a reclaiming of, you know, things that can be associated with women's issues can really have a strong impact. And, yeah, the feminism can gain things for the working class, not just women, how it's important for everyone. I was reading some of the material about the conference and that's one of the things that jumped out to me that if the whole community is under attack or the whole community, meaning men and children are under attack, it's not just enough to raise up women or to address women's issues because the whole community's issues become the issues of a woman. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not, I'm kind of fumbling over my words, but that's what I mean. So I guess I'm wondering, are the issues that you will address at the conference the same as what we hear articulated in the ways that feminism is usually framed? And there's like talk of glass ceilings, like even during the Hillary Clinton campaign or for corporate women who are trying to climb the corporate ladder. You know, I think the head of one of those big defense contractors is a woman. And, you know, she's defending, you know, selling more arms to the Saudis. And I'm wondering how the Me Too movement fits into the conference, if at all. I think that the, well, starting with the Me Too point, I think that the Me Too movement has really shown how the women's movement can be reclaimed and taken back by working class women. So the Me Too movement was last year and it started as it was like tweets and like a lot of Hollywood figures were taking part in it and it kind of, you know, sprung it to the spotlight. But then working class women, women in McDonald's then added it as part of like their labor demands, which was really powerful. And then immokalee workers 
in Florida, women who are earning less than a penny for every bushel that they're picking of fruits and vegetables added it to their demands to stop sexual harassment in the field. Hotel workers, the Unite Here workers, I believe, they also added it to their demands. They won their demand and got panic buttons in their rooms from whenever they're experiencing sexual assault on the job. So working class women, black and brown women, added it to their demands when they were fighting for their labor rights. They added sexual assault. And I think that's a a powerful point that teaches us how to build a movement. We need millions of people in order to win against capitalism. So we need common interests and common goals. And we need to understand our common enemy. So it means sometimes adding different demands. And working class is, I mean, a big chunk of it. I don't want to say half because it could be more than half, right? It could be less, but most likely more, are women. So all the issues that affect women need to be brought into that spotlight. In terms of the glass ceiling point, I kind of hate the talk of the glass ceiling because most of the women in my life and most of the women that I know, like, we don't even see the ceiling, right? You're in the basement. So there's no option of a ceiling and breaking that threshold. I don't want more women CEOs and more women billionaires. I want all the women in my life to have their basic human rights met. I want them to live with dignity and respect. I want them to have housing, health care, um, equality, education. I want them to have the right to an abortion. Um, that's another point that we're going to bring up in our conference is the right-wing assault on reproductive rights. Between 2011 and 2017, so in the six-year span, so this is before Trump and during Trump, 336 laws were put on the table that attacked women's rights, specifically abortion and birth control. And that, to me, is absolutely insane. Like, these representatives in the government, in the U.S. government, have spent countless, countless hours attacking women's rights in particular, women's um, reproductive rights. And that's going to be a huge part because this right-wing assault is on women's bodies and it's like controlling basically who has a right to live and who has a right to die. Because when it comes to reproduction and birth control, when women can't get safe quality abortions, they're still going to find a way to get an abortion and that can result in death. And those numbers are really, really high for black and brown women. So that's going to be another point we talk about in our conference. Well, this week here in D.C., Kirsten Nielsen, head of Homeland Security, testified in a hearing about the U.S. government I say kidnapping children at the border. I mean, we don't we don't call it family separation anymore on this show. When you have children taken from their parents, and then sometimes, uh, in in some cases, they haven't been reunited still, and some of them have come to harm or or even died. So I want to play a clip from that uh, now. Here she's being questioned by Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois. In the same testimony, Nielsen denied that children were kept in cages and also denied that there was a what they called a child separation policy. And here she seems to blame the parents themselves for their children being taken away from them. So the American Academy of Pediatric wrote to DHS six times to explain how family separation hurts children and made a number of public statements. Yes or no, are you aware of those warnings? I am, which is why I continue to ask this committee to work with me so that parents do not separate their children. There were 60,000 last year that were separated by their parents. Thank we you. are talking about 2,000 children that resulted from their parents choosing to break the law, which is why I've continually asked parents to go to a port of entry. So that was Homeland Security head Kirsten Nielsen testifying before Congress this week. And so, Carla, I wanted to get your reaction in terms of the whole crisis of immigration 
what is the what is the real crisis and how this this fits into a discussion about feminism for the 99%? It's thinking about the reasons why people migrate. Right. A lot of people are migrating because the US has intervened in in struggles in their countries, right? Countries that were left-wing struggles, led uh, Marxist struggles in some cases, and actually almost all cases. Um, the U.S. intervention and mili- specifically military intervention destroyed the infrastructure of these countries. And this wasn't that long ago. This is in recent memory. Like my parents are from El Salvador and they were teenagers when during the Civil War in El Salvador. And they came to the United States in the late 80s, early 90s because the country was destroyed because there was an attack on the left specifically. Right. And now we have a, another wave caused because there's a lot of violence in the countries. It was all started decades ago when the infrastructures were destroyed. That's important. So out of this current crisis, and the crisis is not what the Trump administration says it is. It's not people coming here and the numbers. I think Nielsen said something like a million people were marching toward the border. But the crisis is how people are treated at the border and this country's uh, failure to live up to basically international law and let people seek asylum. She's still talking about Blaming the migrants if their children are separated from them because they uh, they not coming through the ports of entry without recognizing that the border is not really allowing people to come in through the ports of entry, if I'm making myself clear. So there was just a lot of misinformation at the hearing. Yeah. Um, so my family is from El Salvador and my mother in particular, she came in. 1989, which is the year I was born. Um, she came when she was pregnant. Um, and she was undocumented. And she came because at the time, there was like a major civil war in El Salvador. It was toward the end of the civil war at this point. And the United States had sent military aid to the right-wing government um, in El Salvador. The government was funding death squads, which were killing many indigenous people. Um, actually, Elliot... Uh, Abrams was questioned on it. Um, Ilhan Omar called him out like two weeks ago about this, about El Salvador and the massacre that happened, which he conveniently didn't want to respond to and acknowledge any responsibility for. But that's what the right wing was doing. And the U.S. is funding that and training in the United States the military officials, which were going to kill people, killing leftists, killing peasants, and killing indigenous people. And it was in that context that many people were migrating at the time. And also, the gangs that were formed were actually gangs that formed in Los Angeles, MS-13. Like, now it's like, oh, MS-13 is so horrible. And they're just, like, coming in. They're rapists. They're this. They're that. Um, Well, those were, like, the orphans left after the war. Like, after their families were killed and they came to the United States, like, seeking new opportunities and a better life because their country was destroyed, they coalesced into families, in in a way, in Los Angeles, and they got deported back. So it's in the context of crisis. The U.S. has created this crisis, helped create this crisis all over Central America. And this happens in other countries, too. That people are poor. There are no jobs. And now the gangs and the government are fighting. Right? They're murdering each other in the streets. And working people, just, they, they just want to go to work, and they can't. They have to worry about what color sneakers they're wearing because that could be affiliated with one gang or another gang. Or they might be worried that the, a policeman will shoot them in an attempt to get a gang member they end up getting shot in a crossfire. And that's no way to live. People just want to work and they want to live with dignity and it's impossible right now. So they're coming and it's called a crisis, but at the border, they're treating people like 
like worse than animals, these people are refugees. And the refugees, and it's been caused um, by U.S. intervention, and it happens all over the world, and it's happening right here. So um, it is our duty to, you know, stand for amnesty for all immigrants. Well, I guess that's a really good point to end this. I've been speaking with Carla Reyes, one of the organizers for the Feminism for the 99% Conference. Reyes is a public school teacher in New York City and an organizer with the Justice Center in El Barrio in East Harlem. And the conference will be March 23rd from 10 to 5 p.m. at the People's Forum, 320 West 37th Street in New York City. And it's being sponsored by the People's Congress of Resistance. Thank you for joining me today, Carla. Thank you so much for having me, Esther. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. So you think I'm alone? This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on this special show for International Women's Day. I'm Esther Averam. The campaign I Stand with Ilhan, supporting freshman Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, successfully pressured House Speaker Nancy Pelosi this week to not introduce a resolution designed to condemn Omar for questioning the outsized influence of the Israel lobbying group APAC. The Coalition of Muslim, Jewish, Christian, and Progressive Organizations stated that any future such resolution must also condemn Islamophobia, racism, and threats against a member of Congress, such as those received by Omar since taking office. The campaign is also successfully challenging the APAC very influential propaganda that equates condemnation of the apartheid policies and war crimes of Israel with condemnation of Jewish people or religion. Here are Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar speaking at Busboys and Poets in Northwest D.C. on February 27, 2019. When I talk about, you know, some sort of human dignity or some sort of, you know, equality and justice for my city and my grandmother in the West Bank, uh, I do it through pure love for her. And, uh, you know, I get emotional every time I talk about this because talking about her and centering why I speak about Palestinian rights the way I do is because I know there is not an inch of hate in this woman. She would embrace anybody that came to her home. She'd feed you too. But she is so much at the center of why I fight so hard to just recognize and humanize Palestinians. So much of the stories that we, I heard about growing up is not shared with enough people. It's not valued. Uh, and I can tell you, I want to thank so many of 
our Jewish allies out there that stood up with me. And they continue to stand up with us and tell the truth, tell the truth that this conversation and debate around human rights for everyone, uh, this conversation around what that looks like is not centered around hate, it's actually centered so much around love. It is about the Benjamin. <laughs> um, I get emotional, I think, every time I, I hear Rashida, and I think I'm just going to stop hanging out with her because she's, she's, uh, she's messing with my smile. Because I... I know that, you know, I, I have a, a huge Jewish constituency and, you know, every time I meet with them, they share stories of, of safety and, and sanctuary that they would love for the people of Israel. And most of the time when we're having the conversation, you know, there is no actual, like, relative that they speak of. And there is still lots of emotions that comes through because it's family, right? Like, my children still speak of Somalia with passion and compassion, even though they don't have a family member um, there. But we never really allow space for the stories of... Palestinians seeking safety and sanctuary to be uplifted. And to me, it is the dehumanization and the silencing of a particular pain and suffering of people should not be okay and normal. And you can't be in the practice of humanizing and uplifting the suffering of one if you're not willing to do that for everyone. And so, so for me, I know that when I hear, right, my Jewish constituents or, or friends or, you know, colleagues speak about Palestinians who don't want safety or Palestinians who aren't deserving, I stay focused on that, the actual debate about what, that process should look like. I never go in the dark place of saying, here's a Jewish person, they're talking about Palestinians, Palestinians are Muslim, maybe they're Islamophobic. I never allow myself to go there because I don't have, I don't have to. And what I am fearful of is that because Rashida and I are Muslim, that a lot of our Jewish colleagues, a lot of our constituents, a lot of our allies, go to thinking that everything we say about Israel to, to be an anti-Semitic because we are Muslim. And so to me, it's something that becomes designed to end the debate. Because you get in this space of, yes, right? Like, I know what intolerance looks like, and I'm sensitive when someone says the words you use, Ilhan, are resemblance of intolerance and I am cautious of that and I feel pained by that but 
it it almost as if every single time we say something regardless of what it is we say that is supposed to be about foreign policy our engagement our advocacy about ending oppression or the freeing of every human life and and wanting dignity we get to be labeled in something and that ends the discussion because we end up defending that and nobody ever gets to have the broader debate of what is happening with Palestine. So for me, I want to talk about I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country. I want to ask why is it okay for me to talk about the influence of the NRA, of fossil fuel industries or big pharma and not talk about a powerful lobbying group that is influencing policy. Right? I want to ask the question, I want to ask the question of why is it okay for you to push for you to be, there's so many people. I mean, most of us are new, but many members of Congress have been there forever. Some of them have been there before we were born. So I know many of them, many of them were fighting, were fighting for people to be freed, for people to live in dignity in South Africa. I know many of them fight for people around the world to have dignity, to have self-determination. So I know, I know that they care about these things. But now that you have two Muslims who are saying, here is a group of people that we want to make sure they have the dignity that you want everybody else to have. We get to be called names and we get to be labeled as hateful. No, we know what hate looks like. We experience it every single day. I have colleagues who talk about death threats. I have colleagues who talk about death threats and sometimes <laughs> there, there are cities in my state where the gas stations have written on their bathrooms assassinate Ilhan Omar. I have people driving around my district looking for my home, for my office, causing me harm. I have people every single day on Fox News and everywhere posting that I am a threat to this country. So I know what fear looks like. The masjid, the masjid I pray in, in Minnesota got bombed by two domestic white terrorists. So I know what it me it feels to be someone who is of faith that is vilified. I know what it means to be of someone who is of ethnicity that is vilified. I know what it feels to be of a race, of a race. Right? Like, I, I am an immigrant, so I don't have the historical drama that some of my black sisters and brothers have in this country. But I know, I know what it means for people to just see me as a black person and to treat me as less than a human.
And so when people say you are bringing hate, I know what their intention is. Their intention is to make sure that our lights are dimmed, that we walk around with our heads bowed, that we lower our face and our voice. But we have news for people. You can call us any kind of name. You can threaten us any kind of way. Rashida and I are not ourselves. Every single day we walk in the halls of Congress, we have people who have never had the opportunity to walk there walking with us. So we're here, we're here to say and represent the voices of people who have been silenced for many decades and generations. And we're here to fight for the people of our district who want to make sure that there is actual prosperity actual prosperity being guaranteed because there is a direct correlation between not having a clean water and starting endless wars it's all about the profit and who gets benefit of it there is a direct correlation there is a correct correlation between corporations that are getting rich and the fact that we have students that are shackled with debt. There is a correct, direct correlation between the White House and the people who are benefiting from having detention beds that are privatized. So what people are afraid of is not that there are two Muslims in Congress. What people are afraid of is that there are two Muslims in Congress that have their eyes wide open that have their feet to the ground, that know what they're talking about, that are fearless, and that understand that they have the same election certificate as everyone else in Congress. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam here on International Women's Day. While President Nicolas Maduro has emerged victorious, in a sense, from a U.S.-orchestrated attempted coup against his elected government, he has called supporters to gather for another mass demonstration on Saturday, March 9th, the same day that opposition leader Juan Guaido has called for a rally. Observers say that the dueling rallies provide another opportunity for the coup plotters to stage a provocation or false flag attack as an excuse for some type of military action by the United States and its allies. 
The U.S.-backed attempted coup and economic sanctions war against Venezuela are just the latest challenges to the Bolivarian Revolution initiated by the late Hugo Chavez to find a new economic model through which all of Venezuela's poor, black, and indigenous population would share in the wealth of the oil-rich country's reserves rather than have those proceeds just go into the pockets of the white oligarchy. Throughout this Bolivarian process and throughout Venezuela's history of resistance, women have been at the forefront. Well, for this segment, I'm joined by Jeanette Charles. She's the International Solidarity Liaison for VenezuelaAnalysis.com and has worked as a writer and editor contributing to issues on Afro-Venezuelans, sex and gender diversity movements, land recuperation processes, and the current political climate. She's worked in solidarity spaces with African and indigenous peoples across Latin America and the Caribbean as a popular educator, human rights advocate, and organizing solidarity brigades. She's lived, worked, and studied in Venezuela for extended periods of time since 2010. She's a daughter of the Haitian diaspora and was raised in Los Angeles, California. Welcome back to On the Ground, Jeanette. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to share with you today. So I thought we would just start with a general overview that you can give us on the role of women in the Bolivarian Revolution. We have these two charismatic figures, Hugo Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro, who are men. And But what are some of the major ways that women have been involved with the history and ongoing process? Of course. Well, first and foremost, I think one of the most important things that listeners should know if they do not already is that the Bolivarian Revolution is one that is self-identified as feminist, socialist, and anti-imperialist. And I think the emphasis on feminism in Venezuela has taken a lot of different forms in the last 20 years when we look at women's leadership at the grassroots level and even within state institutions and ministerial and upper level official positions. Women really do occupy all different types of political power in Venezuela and are part of the driving force behind the revolutionary process and its dynamism, as well as the type of vision that it has for the future. Women are doing economic work. Women are doing grassroots, space building, um, community council leadership work. Women are in education and all sectors of society really shaping and building the Bolivarian Revolution and refounding the Venezuelan Republic in a feminist fashion. Wow. So I'm going to play a clip from Delcy Rodriguez, the vice president of Venezuela, responding to Mike Pence after he basically called for a coup and you know, overthrow of the elected government. Because Mr. Pence doesn't have a job, now he wants to come and run Venezuela, handing out instructions on what should happen in Venezuela tomorrow, openly calling for coup d'etat in Venezuela. I will say it like the Venezuelan people would say it to you. Yankee, go home. Okay, so that's Delcy Rodriguez, the vice president of Venezuela, responding to Mike Pence after he called for a coup in Venezuela. So... Jeanette, she is one of the people I think that you're probably referring to in terms of being in power. Uh, A lot of people, you know, they're almost calling for the overthrow of Maduro as if that will end the Bolivarian process. But as you stated, there are other people there in that process. And Delcy Rodriguez would basically take over the helm if something did happen to Nicolas Maduro. Not that we're saying that 
we want something like that to happen. But uh, people almost act like the process will stop if they somehow manage to, you know, get Nicolas Maduro out of the country. Exactly. And I think that's one of the main oversights in the corporate discussion, right, and mainstream media discussion on Venezuela is that this is a popular process, a popular revolutionary process that's grounded and rooted in an ancestral struggle in Venezuela that goes back to Afro-Venezuelan and indigenous Venezuelan anti-colonial independence era fights. And a lot of, there's a lot of really incredible Venezuelan heroines as well and female leadership or women's leadership uh, icons, you could say, such as Josefa Camejo, who was an independence fighter, Afro-Venezuelan, Luisa Cáceres de Arismendi, who was imprisoned during the War for Independence. And these are women that folks invoke in many ways in the contemporary struggles against U.S. empire and imperialism and are the women that folks refer to and think about and have studied extensively over the last 20 years in particular to bring their struggles and their wisdom to the forefront. Can you backtrack a little bit and just tell us about those two women? Yeah, well, you know, Josefa Camejo is one of the um, Venezuelan women who fought during independence and led many struggles. And Luisa Cáceres Arismendi was imprisoned, as I mentioned, during the War for Independence along the Caribbean coast in the state of Sucre. And, you know, oftentimes, as we know, women are often marginalized or completely erased from history, not just contemporary history, but any sort of resistance movements, any sort of colonial histories in the ways that we see, you know, how oppression works in historical research. And one of the things that the Bolivarian process has done is really encouraged people to go back to archives, to go back to these moments and identify black, indigenous, and women leadership so that people can actually have these figures that they resonate with. You know, it's such an incredible an interesting, moving sight to see when you have young children in Venezuela who are studying these independence-era leaders, and they're not only criollo class folks who were fighting against empire, but rather the people who were most impacted. Manuela Sainz, who, you know, oftentimes is referred to as Simon Bolivar's partner, she was also an incredible independence leader herself and helped lead campaigns and was also incredibly intellectual and a political strategist. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of letters between her and Simon Bolivar discussing really incredible anti-colonial political strategy during the era for independence all across South America. And so these are some of the women. And if we look at, you know, 20th century figures, for example, one woman who comes to mind is Argelia Laya. And Argelia Laya was an Afro-Venezuelan communist and also a guerrilla leader in the mountains of Lara State from Barlovento, which is known for all different types of African legacies, cumbes, which are maroon societies, um, cacao cultivation, which today, you know, we see communities have ownership over their land, their territory, and their their production of chocolate and cacao, you know, for a long time, Venezuela exported cacao all over the world and didn't produce any of its own artisanal chocolates. And now it's one of the largest socialist enterprises in the country. And Argelia Laya from, you know, this region. And so it's incredibly important when we think about just the legacy that women have left in Venezuela. And Chavez, as well as Maduro, have always spoken to the incredible courage and bravery of Venezuela's women. You know, right now, Venezuelan women and feminist movements in particular have led really interesting and innovative legislative struggles. So some of the laws that have happened in the last 20 years include the humanized birthing law, which guarantees women 
you know, humane and ethical treatments, very attentive programming towards women who are, are pregnant, both leading up to the pregnancy and p- during the pregnancy and post-pregnancy. And, you know, I don't want to compare it necessarily to the U.S., but if we look at, demographically speaking, a lot of working-class women all across the Americas, and particularly in the United States, also as well as other parts of the Caribbean that are not um, within socialist societies, maternal morbidity and mortality rates are very high. And it's really important to see that there's an effort being made not only to preserve the life of women, but also children and discussions around even, for example, the constitutionality of women's rights have been at the forefront of the Bolivarian Revolution. Right now, there are also feminist organizations, the same organizations that have talked about the humanized birthing law, are also fighting for the right to abortion in Venezuela and making that a constitutional right. And then there's also the law around the right to a life free of violence, which outlines at least 16 forms of violence interpersonal violence, institutional forms of violence, domestic violence, economic violence, physical violence against women and talks about how to dismantle violence within Venezuelan society institutionally, culturally, and in all different facets. And women have really, I think, mobilized around these issues in a way that have brought and centered um, women at the revolution. Wow. So... I also understand that there is the equivalent of what we tried to get in the United States but failed to get, like an equal rights amendment, that there is in the Constitution in Venezuela a law that basically says that, you know, women are equal to men and that there can be no discrimination. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the amazing things about the Venezuelan Constitution, which was debated, drafted, discussed, revised, et cetera, and voted into legislation in 1999 is that it's grounded in mass assemblies of all across the country, which is the process that people are going through right now in 2019 to also revise their constitution. And there's equitable language in terms of identifying women in the constitution in the same ways that indigenous peoples are recognized in the Venezuelan constitution, as well as land rights. So there's something fundamentally innovative in the way that Venezuela as a revolutionary process has really grounded its constitutional and legal frameworks within human rights and equity perspective within this idea that even in recognizing people's difference and recognizing it in a way that says we can exist as different types of people, but with the same rights and the same levels of access to try and create a better and more humane society. In terms of just trying to follow the coverage of the current attempted coup in that process, I saw some photos of the military and one of the military leaders was speaking, basically rejecting any call for these, um, you know, soldiers to defect or from the military to like leave Venezuela or the government. And there were a lot of women there among the ranks that I noticed. So, I mean, what can you tell us about women in the military in Venezuela, uh, the military that's stood by Nicolas Maduro and, and is basically, you know, holding the country together at this point? Well, one of the things I will say is that I think that, um, you know, corporate media and particularly, you know, U.S. government officials have tried to instigate a type of division between the military and the Bolivarian government that in many ways just does not exist. And, you know, we've seen 
beyond the Bolivarian process since 1999, even if we were to go back to the 1992 attempted civilian military takeover of the state that was led by Chavez, there's a lot of historical relationship between civilian forces and military forces in Venezuela. And the Bolivarian Revolution, what it's done is created a situation in which the military does not treat the people as an enemy of the state. If anything, the Venezuelan military is one that you know, prioritizes the well-being of the people, defends the, you know, la patria or la matria in many ways, the homeland, the fatherland, the motherland. It's a force that is also anti-imperialist and stands against invasion, and that is really a first respondent to disaster, a first respondent to the needs of the people. And women, like you said, have been, you know, increasing their numbers in the military, and I don't actually have official statistics, but visibly, if you look at any sort of official ceremony, any sort of official mobilization of the military, um, you will see visibly more, you know, women's faces. I don't know, comparably to other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, but, you know, it's pretty significant, I think, when we really think about the incorporation of women into such a defensive standing force. You know, this week, Senator Martha McSally of Arizona testified in a hearing that when she was in the Air Force, a senior officer sexually assaulted and raped her. And there's this ongoing scandal of sexual assault in the U.S. military. I'm wondering if those same kinds of issues exists for women in the Venezuelan military. And it occurs to me that these women are also part of civilian life there, also kind of responding to defending the Bolivarian Revolution, the way it has redistributed the resources of the country to aid and assist the poor, black and indigenous communities. It's built more than two million houses. It is actually distributing humanitarian aid in the way that it distributes food throughout the country. So what kind of insight can you give us into those issues? Mm-hmm. Well, I would be remiss not to mention that last year, a group of women and feminist activists and organizers in Venezuela published a report that's called Desde Nosotras, which means from us. And it's a 250-page report that combines data and analysis to talk about the key challenges that face Venezuelan women from political, economic, health, sexual and reproductive rights, it runs the gamut. And I think really what it does is put into perspective the ways in which this political process has not only empowered but encouraged women and feminist organizations to really place their their needs and their debates at the forefront and fight for justice in very concrete ways. And also what I think is important about that particular report is it mentions and highlights the ways in which U.S. aggression and sanctions have impacted women, you know, who really have been burdened in many ways by the impact of U.S. sanctions. Women, you know, are the heads of households in many places and are the ones who are waiting in in long lines who have to ensure that there's food on the table at the end of the day, are the people who also are their, you know, voceros, voceras, excuse me, who are their spokespeople of their movements at, you know, community assemblies in the evenings, who are the coordinators of local community projects during the day. And so you see in Venezuela that there are so many different ways in which women have access to challenging historical oppression and revolutionizing their conditions so that the material, spiritual, and political conditions for their communities are radically changing at all points in time. And the other thing I really want to mention is that with the commune movement, um, women have actually organized popular education schools. 
So a few years ago, they inaugurated a, a gender and sexual diversity popular feminism school that talked about different political theories around popular forms of feminism coming from African and indigenous movements all across Latin America and the Caribbean. And this traveling popular education school went from commune to commune to hold these discussions to organize forums amongst women and sexually diverse or queer folks as we know them in the United States, LGBTQ communities. And I think that's also incredibly important to highlight is that this revolutionary process is more than one president. It's more than these individual figures that get highlighted and named in the news, which is important because, you know, that's also part of the work that needs to be done. But this revolutionary process is also about millions of people and especially women who have led and fought for a type of change they wish to see in their society. And they're making it happen every day. Every day. I like that every day. So Venezuelan men, children and women are making their revolution happen every day. It's not just about Maduro. It's not just about the army. It's not just about even the vice president, Delcy Rodriguez, but it's about all Venezuelans making their revolution happen every day. And I, I think that's a great place to end our discussion. I've been speaking with Jeanette Charles International Solidarity Liaison for VenezuelaAnalysis.com, where she has also worked as a writer and editor. Thank you for joining me today, Jeanette. Thank you so much. And that will do it for today's special show for International Women's Day. Another thanks to my guest, Jeanette Charles of VenezuelaAnalysis.com and Carla Reyes of the People's Congress of Resistance. And thanks to our contributor, Chantel James. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can support On The Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Janelle Monet, I Like That, and Cold War, and Jill Scott, Golden. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, be like Ilhan. Keep raising your voice. Peace.